Take your Bibles now, please, and turn with me to Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8. And uh, so we can pick up some of the context. We'll begin reading in Esther 7, verse 10. This is God's word. We read it as an act of worship. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite in the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time. In the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and to the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to the, each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in, the Sousa, in Susa, the citadel. 
Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This is God's word for God's people. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we ask now that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. Move in our hearts, stir us as only you can. It is your spirit alone who can descend to the division of joints and marrow of soul and spirit, who can apply the holy word of God where each and every person here needs it. We ask that you would do that this evening. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I guess it was some 10, maybe 12 years ago now when I was trying to prepare myself for the birth of a new child and anticipating the all-nighters that we would have to spend with these cranky, irreverent children. Um, I decided I would choose a television program when Netflix was only available on the computer. Some of y'all remember that. And I would sit and watch it as far as I could into the morning, just trying to prepare my internal biological clock for the long nights. And I chose to watch a TV program that had been fairly popular, and all the seasons were on Netflix. It was a program called Lost. And I sat down, and night after night, I would watch three or four episodes to early in the morning, and I was really getting into it, and it had... 40 or 50 different plot lines going, and I got to the last season thinking, there is some work to do here. And I got down to the last program, the very last episode, and I thought, this is not going to end well. And the program ended, and the credits rolled, and all I could do was sit there with blank disbelief that this program had let me down. It didn't have a conclusion. The title of of the show, Lost, is exactly how it ought to be described. The whole plot was lost. And I was lost watching it. Well, as we come to Esther chapter 8 tonight, we are reminded that a good story, one that keeps our attention, uh, one that makes sense, one that brings us joy, is one that has all the right elements of of a story. It has a conflict and we can identify it. And here that conflict has been really between Mordecai and Haman. And who will be the victor? But a good plot, a good story also has a really good conclusion. It follows it all the way out. It resolves all of the issues that have been uh, brought up by the narrator. 
And so as we think about what's going on in the plot line of Esther, we realize that we've gotten to this point where Haman has been defeated. And we, we ended chapter 7 and we were all pumping our fists. We're saying, all right, this is just, justice. And not only justice, but this man Haman was hanged on the gallows which he built. I mean, who can write a better ending to the story than that? But there's more to the story. We are quickly reminded that the whole issue, the whole conflict hasn't been resolved. Wait just a minute, the narrator might say. There's still a problem here, folks. You remember that edict way back in chapter 3, which seems like it was several months ago now. That edict to kill all of the Jews, to annihilate them, to destroy them, to utterly wipe them off the face of the earth, that's still there. That still has to be dealt with. Although Haman was hanged, the plan to destroy the Jews was still active. And something has to be done about this. So as we enter into chapter 8, we are reminded very quickly that that Esther and Mordecai, their mourning, their weeping, their their fear, their concern has not totally ended. And so the first thing that we notice here as we enter into this story is that Haman's house was conferred upon Mordecai. There's sort of a preliminary victory here. And notice with me in verse 1, on that day, well, which day are we talking about? Well, it's this day on which Haman was hanged on the gallows. And oh, by the way, it's the same day in which uh, Haman paraded Mordecai through town. Uh, And oh, 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 by the way, it's the same day on which the king early that morning couldn't sleep. We're reminded that this whole series of events, yet again, is being directed by the providence of God. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her, and the king took off his signet ring which he had taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Some very important events take place in our narrative here. You notice that not only now is Queen Esther has has Queen Esther come into the very presence of Haman, into the very inner court, but now Mordecai is allowed to come in as well. The household of Haman... Uh, Queen Esther has been set over Haman's house, and she set Mordecai over that house. But notice something very important takes place here in verse 2. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. Uh, What is being signified here? What is the big deal with this signet ring? Well, just to remind you, turn back to chapter 3. And let's notice the the journey that this signet ring has been on. In chapter 3, verse 10, we remember that it was there, Haman came before Ahasuerus and said, please issue an edict to destroy the Jews. 
And it was at that point in verse 10, notice the king took off his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. When the king gave that signet ring to Haman, he is conferring royal power upon Haman. He can use this signet ring wherever that signet ring is used to stamp or seal a letter, it is given the king's authority. Now do you see that this great irony is taking on an even bigger scope? Uh, the, the ring that once was conferred upon Haman has now been given to Mordecai. What does all of this mean? Well, Haman, who once was the second in command to Ahasuerus, is dead and Mordecai has taken his place. And Esther set Mordecai, the ruler, over the house of Haman. What an important move was that? We know that enemies often plot revenge. We ought to understand that the household of Haman, with his death, what are they sitting there brooding upon or thinking about? Getting revenge. So Esther very deftly moved to place Mordecai as watchman over the house. And our narrative quickly moves then into the second aspect of this whole story. Esther pleading for the Jews' lives. Now we get down to the very important point, don't we? This is what we're all thinking about. This is what we're all concerned about. How will the Jews' lives be Saved In verses 3 to 8, we find it. Although Haman has been executed, we are immediately reminded that Esther's business is not concluded. You remember that the whole reason Mordecai came to Esther asking her to act was not merely to eliminate Haman. The whole idea is to eliminate the plot to destroy the people of God. This is why they have, as it were, had their coming out party. This is why they have identified themselves as Jews, to save their people, to end the edict. Esther quickly remembered that her work was not done. It would have been easy for her to look up upon that pike or that gallows to see uh, Haman displayed there and to say, the work is finished, everybody's okay. But as a faithful mediator, she remembered that it wasn't. You and I are ready for the curtain to go down until we remember that the Jews are still in danger. Uh, it reminds us of a certain incident that took place uh, way back in the 19th century. On December 24th, 1814, uh, two warring parties got together in a place called Ghent and signed a treaty between Britain and the United States of America ending... The War of 1812. But there was something that happened that didn't conclude the war. And that something was that treaty, news of that treaty, took time to travel all the way to the United States. So that in 1815, nearly a month after that treaty was signed, a battle took place in New Orleans. 
They were fighting a war that had already been decided. A war, by the way, a battle, by the way, which probably propelled Andrew Jackson to the presidency of this country, all because that news didn't reach our people. We're ready for the curtain to go down until we remember that there's still danger, there's still work to be done. So Esther appealed to Ahasuerus, and we notice that when she appealed to him, it had two facets to it. First of all, Esther turned on the charm, and then she turned on the logic. Notice her charm appeal, first of all, in verse 3. Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet. She wept and she pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. The first thing that Esther does is she begins emotionally. She fell at Ahasuerus' feet. She appealed to his emotions using her emotions. She called Haman's plan evil. How can he not respond to this? And he did. Ahasuerus held out the scepter to Esther. And now that Esther had his attention, she rose. She stood upon her feet. And she made her logical appeal to him. Having received Ahasuerus' blessing, now Esther argued on the basis of principle. Notice with me in verse 5. If it pleased the king... And if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. How can I bear to see the calamity of my people? And Ahasuerus' response was to grant her ultimate and final wish, the rescue of her people. One of the things that this makes us remember is that although wicked men may die, their plans live on. Although wicked men may die, their plans live on. I remember, as well as many of you do, when the Twin Towers fell. And there was that period after the attack on September 11th that we were wrestling with how we ought to respond as a nation. Uh, Many were telling us that we ought to go in and and obliterate Saddam Hussein, that we ought to annihilate him. And I, I will tell you that I personally wrestled with that. What was the right response? And one of the reasons that we wrestled with that is because killing Saddam Hussein did not wipe out his ideology. In the end, it was perhaps the right thing to do. He was a wicked man. But we ought to remember, we ought to remember very well that even when wicked men die, their ideas, their ideologies do not die with them. They go on. Here we might rejoice that the house of Saul has defeated the house of Agag. Remember, that takes us all the way back to the very beginning. This is the great conflict. It's not merely Mordecai versus Haman. This is Saul versus Agag. This is a a rehashing of that great failure of Saul that cost him the kingship. 
And here we see it playing out again. Only this time, there's a different ending, isn't there? The house of Saul has vanquished the enemy. Agag is dead. But we must not rejoice too quickly. If Agag's wicked ideas and philosophies do not die with him, someone else will take his place. Don't we see that as well? Why is there another Agag? Well, because the wicked ideas and philosophies of the first Agag have found another representative as they always do. And so you and I, this is something that we must keep very close to our hearts. We are not doing battle with people. Christianity and the kingdom of Jesus Christ has not come forth to conquer people, to take land. We are doing battle on a daily basis with principalities and powers. We see that every day. Where a wicked ruler is removed, do not doubt that 10,000 are ready to take his place. You and I, were always looking forward to the next election, and we're so thankful, and and we are thankful that uh, recently conservative justices were placed on the Supreme Court. But is that a final victory? No. No. Our battle is not to be won in the political arena, but in the spiritual arena. Folks, we are doing battle over truth. Over truth. Ideologies pitted against one another. And and I will tell you, if we get Merry Christmas printed on every Starbucks cup, we have not won a victory. We are doing battle with Satan himself in, day in, and day out, personally and culturally. This battle is won through the means that Christ has appointed. Preaching, prayer, and perseverance in good works by God's people. Do not forget that point. As often as we lament the many personalities that we see on TV vomiting their ideas on places like MSNBC and CNN, our battle is not against those people, it's against what they believe. And the victory over what they believe is only conquered through preaching and prayer and perseverance and good works by God's people. Next, we see thirdly that Mordecai delivered the edict of deliverance. How appropriate is this? Verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials and the provinces from India to Ethiopia. Here we find that chapter 8 verses 9 to 16 are virtually identical to chapter 3 verses 12 to 15. Mordecai's work, in other words, completely reversed 
everything that Haman had commanded. Everything that Haman had commanded, uh, Mordecai reversed it. It's almost as though Mordecai had sat down with Haman's edict on one side and a pen in his hand over here and a blank parchment and was writing down exactly what Haman said but reversing it. And that's true, but with two exceptions. It is true, but with two exceptions. I want you to notice with me verse 9. And hold your finger over on chapter 3. We'll compare these two passages. Notice to whom Mordecai addressed the second edict. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews and their script and their Language. Now turn over with me to chapter 3, verse 12. Then the king's scribes, this is Haman now writing the first edict, were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps, to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of the people, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. You notice the difference? That in chapter 3 verse 12, there's no reference to the Jews, no address to the Jewish people. Well, Mordecai reversed it and made it better. He placed the Jews at the very front. He included them with the governors and the officials and the satraps, and not only included the Jewish people, but put them in front of all of the governors. Now the Jews are listed alongside of them, and not only alongside, but before them. Now let's read chapter 3, verse 13 together. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th, month of the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Now turn back over with me for, uh, to chapter 8, verse 11. To notice the parallel language. He sent letters by mounted couriers saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Not only was the attack stopped. You see, Mordecai didn't just write and say, don't attack the Jews. Mordecai's edict enabled the Jews to defend themselves. He authorized the Jews to defend themselves with deadly force against anyone who might attack them. So you see, the Jews' fortunes are not only reversed, but they are made better. And as we consider this concluding scene, the narrator would have us take special note of the passage of time between Mordecai's decree and Haman's. Did you notice that there's a little little date 
stamp on the text. Go back to chapter 8, verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. The third month of the the third month and the 23rd day. So we go back to chapter 3, the previous date stamp. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. That seems like a, just a passing reference so that we will know exactly what the timing was. But then you begin to do a little bit of calculation. And if you subtract the first month from the third month, you're left with 60 days. And if you subtract the 13th day from the 23rd day, you're left with 10 days. And so the total that you arrive at is 70 days. Okay, so what's the big deal, preacher? Well, only this, that surely no Jew after the Babylonian captivity after the Babylonian exile, would miss the significance of 70 days. We're reminded in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11, and Daniel 9, verse 2 and 24, that the captivity of the people of Israel would take place for 70 years. And then in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, there's further clarification given that this would be 70 weeks of years for a total of 490 years. The 70 weeks is a reference to the restoration of Israel. Now this is beginning to take a a broader shape for us. Why does Esther occur where it does in the Hebrew canon near the end? What is it trying to remind them of? Why the 70 weeks? Why the placement in the canon? It is placed here as a reminder of the ultimate redemption of God's people. And that the reversal of their fortunes comes with the coming of Jesus Christ. And that this is not just a reversal of fortunes. This is not just uh, bringing you back and restoring just what you lost. But as we find at the end of Job, that this is not just a restoration. It is giving you that and more. And as you and I think about this and the coming of Christ in His incarnation, we are reminded that this is not just restoring us to where Israel was, but God has given us a greater gift. He's given us more. He's given us a fullness that Israel, the church under age, didn't experience. By His Holy Spirit, we have a full redemption and are looking forward to a day of greater joy. And that brings us to the last point here in our narrative. Verses 15 to 17. We notice Mordecai adorned in royal splendor. Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes 
uh, blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. Uh, Brothers and sisters, if this is not a picture of the glory of Jesus Christ coming forth, uh, literally garbed in the colors of a priest with a kingly crown upon his head, declaring to the people their ultimate conquest over their enemies, then there isn't one in Scripture. Many note the parallels between Mordecai's story and Joseph's. After having his coat taken away and spending years as a slave and in prison, Joseph was brought out, given a royal coat, and made second in command. And through his position of power, he saved the Jewish people. After rending his garments in mourning, Mordecai fasted and prayed for God's deliverance. And Mordecai was brought out of mourning, given a royal coat, and made second in command, and through his position of power, saved the Jewish people. In every possible way, this story is reminding us of God's redemptive victory. If you're a Jew in post-exilic Babylon, if you're one of the few maybe who trickled back to Jerusalem, or you're one of the ones in Persia, and you're awaiting the promises of the prophets, this book is telling you to look forward to hope. There are good days coming. Just as with Joseph, God is going to bring His people out. He will accomplish a victory for His people. God redeemed His people, and He turned their mourning and weeping into shouts of ecstatic joy. I love this phrase. Notice in verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. No longer did they hide in fear in their houses. They came out and rejoiced. They shook hands again. Mordecai, we remember, does not deserve to be clothed in this splendor. In some sense, we have been just as revolted by Mordecai's actions as we were by Haman's. But we are reminded by his depiction that neither do we deserve to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Mordecai, like you and me, enjoys God's gracious favor. God redeems whom he wills. He gives his mercy to whom he wills. In spite of what we deserve, he bestows the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let me give you just a few concluding points of application from this passage. You notice in this how strange it is that Ahasuerus would give away his signet ring, entrusting it to Mordecai, saying that if you use this ring, you can issue an edict that cannot be undone, and he's doing that so he can undo an edict that had already been... uh, Uh, given, that also couldn't be undone. In some sense, Ahasuerus represents to us and to the Jews the typical earthly ruler. And we have a few lessons to learn from him. 
If you and I put our trust in the promises of earthly rulers, we will be disappointed. If we lean into them to sustain and support the ultimate change that we desire, we will look like fools. These men are like sifting sand. It doesn't matter what they say to you on their platform. Their hearts are subject to change. They are wicked men. They are sinful men, even if redeemed. Our hope is not that we will gain cultural victory through political gains, but that through faithful perseverance in preaching the gospel, the kingdom of Christ will take hold of our community. Folks, we are reminded from this story not to place our hope in politics, not to disengage from it, certainly. Secondly, God wants you to anticipate a time of joy and feasting. We've reflected uh, as we've looked at Luke's gospel on the great rejoicing that came with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It isn't too much to assume that many households at New Covenant right now are not experiencing great joy for one reason or another. In fact, if you've gone through the last two years like the rest of humanity, I think it's safe to assume that many of you have struggled to find joy. No doubt there are many reasons for sadness, many reasons for gloom in our day. But there is one reason for great joy, and that is the future. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ Jesus, you have great joy ahead of you. It is a joy that you cannot imagine. There is coming for you a day of light and joy and honor that will not be surpassed. And it is going to be a time of joy and rejoicing where every day will be better than the one before. Where you will go on into all eternity, day by day, growing in your knowledge and in your enjoyment of Christ Jesus and one another. Even now, he is praying for you. And no matter how dark the days may feel, he will keep you until the very end. And just as for Mordecai and Esther, we ought to remember that joy comes in the morning. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these precious reminders that you have redeemed us. And even though these days are full of sorrow and sadness, there is a day coming for all of your people when we will rejoice with exceeding great rejoicing. When we will see Christ as he is, when we will be transformed into his likeness in, the mo in a moment, in the blink of an eye, we will be caught up with him in the clouds with all of our family members who have died in faith we will feast together and we will be openly acknowledged by Jesus and acquitted of all of our sins and we will go on as those who possess the earth working it tilling it for your glory singing your praises with a congregation that possesses the entire earth and heaven and with all of your angels 
in bodies that can no longer break down and get sick, when we will no longer be beset by evil rulers like Ahasuerus who do not seem to know Friday from Monday, who give empty promises for whatever suits the moment, when we will serve our faithful Lord Jesus for all eternity, when we can eat whatever we want to and feast and work and labor for your glory. Hasten that day, great God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.